Are you a regular listener to the Need to Know podcast? We greatly appreciate you. And if you're a new listener, we hope you enjoy it. We would also appreciate if you would take the time to leave a review on your podcast distributor. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Today on the Need to Know podcast, we're joined by Asia Program Director Abraham Denmark, who joins us as an expert on Asia writ large and also on Korea. He's going to help us understand what's going on with North Korea right now, with all the rumors surrounding the health of Kim Jong-un. We figured it would be a good time to hold a briefing on this. So what you're about to hear is a version of a briefing that we did for congressional staff on this subject. And the questions that we have are ones that we have gotten from congressional staff on the webinar that we did. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm here to, to talk with you about what's going on with Kim Jong-un. Um, and what, what it means, sort of how to think about uh, leadership uncertainty when it comes to Kim Jong-un and North Korea. Um, so the plan is to talk about what we know about Kim's status, which is quite little, um, and then talk about sort of the various options that are involved with uh, succession in North Korea, the implications of those various options, and then some thoughts about what may come next. Um, so to begin, What's going on with Kim Jong-un? What's the status? The last image of Kim Jong-un that North Korea media published on April 12th, uh, he is inspecting an air defense unit in Western North Korea. No one really knows uh, what's going on with him and trying to guess really is, uh, without much information is not gonna help very much. But a few pieces I, I wanted to, to mention to you. The reason we're asking about his status is that he missed a celebration of his grandfather's birthday uh, and the Army Day in the last couple of weeks, uh, neither of which he had missed before since he rose to power. Um, missing Army Day is not especially surprising, and this wasn't a major anniversary, it's not a round number, but it is notable that he wasn't there. Uh, so there's a, a few things to keep in mind. Uh, one, Kim has disappeared from view before for a few weeks at a time, uh, as his father and grandfather had as well. Uh, sometimes it's a big deal, meaning something important sometimes, it's not, sometimes we don't know why he disappeared. It just happens sometimes. Uh, and two, Kim's health and his location are uh, a state secret in North Korea, uh, as it was with his father and grandfather. Most North Koreans don't know where Kim Jong-un is at any given time. They don't know uh, his health status at any given time. And that includes most elite. Uh, most likely it's just a few people, his wife, some very top advisors who know how he's doing, who know where he is at any given time. Uh, and this is mostly for internal security purposes, to keep him safe, both from internal or external threats. Uh, but there's three basic rumors about what's going on with him uh, circulating around. First, uh, the rumor is that he is dead or in some sort of coma following heart surgery complications. And this makes some sense. He's not a healthy guy. Uh, he is uh, morbidly obese. Uh, he is known to drink and smoke quite a bit. There's uh, some reports of uh, drug use. Does that, doesn't seem to get a lot of exercise. So, and he has also a family history of uh, heart problems, of cardiovascular problems. Both his father and his grandfather suffered from those. So that's a seemingly plausible explanation. Uh, the second, there was a rumor that he was injured by a missile test. North Korea conducted a missile test on April 14th. Usually he's there, but this time there were no images of him 
uh, at the test broadcast afterwards as is their usual practice. So some people believe he may have been injured in a missile test. Uh, and then there's some, uh, some in the ROK government have said that he, they believe he's alive and well, uh, probably at uh, Wonsan in Eastern North Korea uh, since, uh, since the missile test probably. And there's been some media notices of his activities, mostly sending and receiving anodyne diplomatic cables, uh, but largely he's been quiet. And uh, the other notable piece is there's been no photos of him in North Korean media um, since uh, for several weeks now. Uh, so why do they believe he's at Wonsan? And what's going on there? So he has a, uh, a villa here, a complex uh, in which he likes to stay. Uh, at times it's on the water, it looks very nice. Um, and uh, recently over commercial media, his, um, uh, per, what we believe to be his personal train was seen at that railway station. That gives some indications. If the train's there, then that there's a good chance that he would be there as well. Maybe recuperating uh, from some sort of health problem, maybe social distancing from coronavirus. Uh, it's hard to say. North Korea says that they don't have any coronavirus. They say there's no coronavirus cases uh, in North Korea. But if you take a look at this image uh, from North Korean media a few weeks before he disappeared, uh, take a look at all the people behind him wearing masks, and you tell me whether or not North Korea has a coronavirus problem. And I'll get a bit into more of what that may mean in a bit. Uh, but this speaks directly to concerns about succession. So if his status is unknown, if we don't know what's going to happen with him, how are we supposed to think about North Korean succession? So I, I wanted to give you a bit of background about what's going on with North Korea. And that has to start with uh, a description of the Mount Bektu bloodline. It's a high mountain, the highest mountain on the Korean peninsula. It's actually a huge volcano uh, straddling the border between China and North Korea. Uh, it erupted about a thousand years ago, one of the largest explosions in human history. And it's important for our discussion because Mount Bektu is considered a sacred place uh, for centuries of Korean folklore. And the Kim family uh, has appropriated its significance uh, as part of their uh, founding myth, as a symbol of their family, as a symbol of the revolution that led to the founding of the country. So it's significant because uh, Mount Bektu, according to the regime, uh, Kim Il-sung used Mount Bektu as an important base in his guerrilla fight against the Japanese. Uh, and also that Mount Bektu was the uh, birthplace of Kim Jong-il, of Kim Jong-un's father. And there's all these myths about double rainbows and swallows when, it was, when he was born. Uh, North Korea paints the grandfather, Kim Il-sung, as a brilliant anti-Japanese guerrilla commander who led Korea to victory against the Japanese. The reality, of course, is that Mount Bektu had nothing to do with uh, the founding of the country. Kim wasn't even in Korea when Japan was defeated. Uh, Japan, of course, was defeated by the United States, not Kim Il-sung. Uh, and Kim, when he did fight the Japanese, he primarily fought in Manchuria, northern China. His fighting days, though, he was done fighting by 1940. Uh, he fled across the border into the Soviet Union, and he spent the rest of his time fighting with the Red Army in uh, the Russian Far East. Uh, Kim Jong-il was actually born in Siberia, not on Mount Bektu. And he, when he did return to Korea in September of 1945, uh, he was not the head of a victorious army, but rather a fairly uh, unremarkable young man on a Soviet naval ship, uh, who later was propped up by Stalin to be the new leader of their puppet regime. Uh, but that aside, the Bektu bloodlines infused with all North Korean propaganda uh, that North Korean people read and hear every day. It's a core element of Kim Jong-un's legitimacy and, and uh, a core element of why he is the person to succeed his father and grandfather. Succession is not stipulated in the North Korean constitution. 
uh, rather um, in the mid-1970s, as Kim Jong-il was rising to power to replace his father, uh, North Korea established what they call the Ten Principles for the Establishment of the One Ideology System. Uh, that's sort of the Ten Commandments of North Korea. It supersedes the Constitution uh, in practice. Uh, and when Kim Jong-un was coming to power uh, in 2013, they updated it to include, to elevate Kim Jong-il, uh, to elevate the party, and to establish hereditary succession as, uh, as part of their Ten Commandments. So any successor uh, within the system would probably have to come from the, from the uh, Bektu bloodline, uh, at least as a figurehead, if not the actual leader. So let's take a look at the Bektu bloodline. Potential successors. If Kim Jong-un dies or if he is uh, out of commission for some reason, right off the bat, there are two six, uh, contenders to the throne who um, are already out, already out of the picture. Uh, first uh, is Jung Sung Tech, uh, who's not a member of the Kim family, but he did marry Kim Il-sung's daughter. Uh, and of course, he was murdered in 2013 uh, by Kim Jong-un uh, for growing too powerful and being close, too close to China. So he's out. Uh, second was uh, Kim Jong-nam, uh, Kim Jong-un's half-brother, his older half-brother um, from a different mother, uh, both sons of Kim Jong-il. Uh, but of course, he was murdered, but um, likely on Kim Jong-un's orders at the Kuala Lumpur airport in 2017. Uh, so he's out. Then uh, there's a third brother, Kim Jong-chol, who's uh, also older than Kim Jong-un. Uh, he's once seen as the heir, heir apparent, but uh, was rejected by his father, uh, by Kim Jong-il, as being too soft, uh, too effeminate, um, something that may, that, uh, that may uh, suggest that he's a homosexual. Uh, it, he is alive. He leads a quiet life in North Korea, doesn't really seem to get too involved in uh, political affairs. So he's probably out as well. So what people see is the most likely successors, and they're the, the larger pictures on this uh, screen here. Uh, first, what most people have their money on, the person that most people are looking at is Kim Jong-jong, uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, younger sister. Uh, she is, uh, right now her job is, she's the first vice director of the Propaganda and Agitation Department, and she's also an alternate member of the Politburo. Uh, she is involved apparently with offices 38 and 39, which engage in illicit activities to generate hard cash for the family and the regime. Uh, she herself is beginning to be, there's some indications that there's a bit of a personality cult developing around her as well. Um, she's also been reportedly issued uh, military orders uh, just to women units of the Korean People's Army. Uh, she's been seen accompanying him on diplomatic trips, including with President Trump, uh, and represented North Korea at the Olympics, at the Winter Olympics. Um, main reason um, that if she doesn't become the, the leader in, in a succession uh, in a succession contingency, it would probably be, be because of her gender, uh, her age. She's only 32. Uh, and there's, it's very unclear she has a real power base uh, uh, of her own. Really, her power seems to be tied with Kim Jong-un. Uh, the two less likely people are uh, Kim Pyong-il, uh, who is actually the son of Kim Il-sung, who's uh, Kim Jong-un's half-uncle. Uh, he spent 40 years in Europe as a diplomat. Uh, returned to North Korea last year. Uh, Kim Jong-un did not assassinate him. Uh, so most people believe that means he's probably seen as not a threat. Uh, mostly he'd be credible if, you, if people don't want to go with Kim Yo-jong because of her age and her gender. And finally, the uh, people that the guy who has the least amount of chance of getting him, but some people are keeping an eye on is Kim Han-sol, uh, 
He's young, he's only 25. He's the eldest son of Kim Jong-nam, the half-brother who was assassinated in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, he lives in Macau, probably under the protection of the Chinese government, and um, has been quoted as calling Kim Jong-un a, a dictator. So uh, not a fan of the regime, but um, maybe a candidate if someone wants to use him as a, a bit of a, a figurehead to, in case the government is overthrown. But the last one, people aren't really talking about this person, but I wanted to raise them for your attention, is Kim So Song. Uh, she's rumored to be very smart. Um, she's worked closely with her father and her grandfather. Uh, apparently she was Kim Jong-il's favorite child, uh, ran his travel, his security, and, and uh, schedule. Um, she's apparently a very powerful behind-the-scenes player in North Korea, um, although her relationship with Kim Jong-un is unknown. Um, so if something were to happen to Kim, to Kim Jong-un, she would be probably a very powerful player, if not the, a figurehead herself. So what, one point I wanted to make for all of you is there's a lot of talk in Washington about North Korean collapse, and there has been since the 90s. And what, what, I've, what I believe, though, what a lot of people have found is that the regime, regime is actually more resilient than people tend to give it credit for. Um, so I would not expect to see elites rising up immediately. Uh, indoctrination, political indoctrination is a very powerful thing. Uh, but there's also a tremendous amount of entrenched interests across the elites uh, that will probably keep them loyal for a while. There's a large bureaucracy, uh, Byzantine institutions that uh, with a lot of officials give them those vested interests. Uh, that reinforces sort of a Machiavellian calculation in keeping the regime together. Um, but if Kim Jong-un dies and succession is not in place, if they're not able to glom on to one person, uh, we could see a, a mix of fear and opportunism amongst the elites uh, with a lot of uncertainties about the potential for palace coup, intrigue, civil war, etc. It's impossible to guess which individual will come out on top. Uh, but the way I think about these various groups of elites, I think you can divide them into three broad categories. You have, on one hand, the party, which is mostly a civilian political cadre. Uh, the sec on the second, you have uh, the bureaucracy. You can think of it sort of as the executive branch. Really, they're a bit player. The third is really is the military. And the, uh, in the event of uh, uncertain succession, uh, I'd expect to see the military and the party really butting heads to see who gets the advantage. Um, and a lot of that's because of the of, uh, recent history. Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un's father, ruled through the bureaucracy, and he really elevated the role of the military uh, to secure his reign uh, in order to maintain their loyalty. That's why you saw the military first policy in his reign. Uh, Kim Jong-un, when he came to power, though, he purged a lot of people to consolidate his rule, not through institutions, and he consolidated that power, not through institutions, but into himself, um, elevating the party over a lot of those old generals, uh, so the military has been disempowered a bit under Kim Jong-un. So that approach makes a lot of sense, I think, when you're new and young and you want to get rid of your potential rivals, but it's also not a great plan for succession. And it does to seem to me to set the stage for a potential leadership crisis if he were to die with no clear successor in place. So organizationally, the question to me is if the party of the military would, accept, would ascend uh, after Kim Jong-un were to pass. Uh, my money... Uh, would, were to be on the military mostly because they have the guns and the organization. Um, and then the question is, if a Kim family member takes the lead, would they be the substantive lead or more of a figurehead? Um, but uh, I would think no real elite person would jump out um, uh, without major trouble unless they have serious backing from key factions, especially the military. And anyone who does that during, while Kim has been in power, would probably have already been killed off.
Uh, so I think it's pretty unlikely that somebody like that already exists. Um, the other piece of implications I want to talk briefly about is its implications for nuclear command and control. If, if Kim Il-sung, I'm sorry, if Kim Jong-un dies, I think this will be a major area of focus. So recall, if you could recall a, a brief footnote from uh, the drama of the past three and a half years between North Korea and the United States. Kim began uh, 2018 declaring to the world that a nuclear button is always on his desk, the desk in his office, a clear allusion to his personal control over North Korea's nuclear arsenal and Trump fired back in a tweet saying, quote, I too have a nuclear button, but it is a much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works. Uh, so when the two met in Singapore and later in Hanoi uh, for the denuclearization negotiations, Trump uh, was accompanied as always by a staffer carrying the so-called nuclear football uh, that would theoretically allow him to authorize a strike uh, or nuclear use wherever he is. Um, now this is, uh, we don't know how North Korea's nuclear command and control works, but I raise that to, remind you that uh, we don't, we should not, we should be careful to not mirror image just because we do it in one way doesn't mean that that's how the North Koreans do it. So what I'm about to tell you is pretty much all speculation besides that uh, we expect that most of the authority to use nuclear weapons is contained in itself. With nuclear tests, recent ICBM launches, even satellite launches, North Korea propaganda has made an effort to show that Kim specifically signing orders and calling for various actions. Uh, so that suggests a very centralized and assertive command and control uh, during peacetime. So we expect a highly centralized, I expect a highly centralized command and control system, uh, but that does have problems about what to do if he dies. Given Kim's overarching concerns about regime change attempts, and uh, one has to assume that the system is designed to what nuclear experts call fail deadly, that units um, may be ordered to launch nuclear weapons in the result that he's been decapitated. Uh, in a, um, in a uh, first strike from North Korea's enemies. Uh, this could actually mean that the decision to use nuclear weapons in a crisis or a conflict may rest uh, with the actual commander, the military commander with the physical weapons themselves. So if there's a civil war, if there's factional control, especially uh, within the military, these questions become even more complicated. The possibility of several military commanders controlling their own nuclear weapons vying with one another to demonstrate that they're in control, demonstrate that they, um, to gain control of all the WMDs. Now, uh, within that system, imagine being an army major in control of a nuclear armed missile somewhere in North Korea during a leadership crisis of some sort, and you hear that Kim Jong-un is dead, and a few people are claiming to be his successor, and then a call comes ordering you to launch your weapon. What do you do? I raise that point to just say that this would be a highly volatile situation. So what comes next? I'll, I'll, I'll keep this uh, brief. Basically, my sense is pretty much pointless to speculate about what's really going on with Kim Jong-un. Uh, they'll tell us, when we know then, when they tell us then, we'll know for sure what's going on. Um, but there are some things that we can't think about in terms of future paths. Um, so I really see three broad possibilities. If Kim Jong-un Kim Jong is alive, if he's able to get through whatever's going on, he has already told his people to expect belt tightening. I don't think he would expect a deal with the United States because of our upcoming election. I expect he'll look to maintain the appearance of strength, especially after these rumors of ill health. So I would expect more provocations like missile tests, ramped up cyber activities, but probably not a major provocation like ICBM or a nuclear test. He may calculate that doing something major would um, either get President Trump to give him some sort of major concession to stay quiet during the election period or help them set the stage for a possible Biden administration. But if Kim Jong-un is dead, 
uh, or if he dies. And a Kim family successor has been named and there's a fairly smooth process. Uh, I would look to what Kim Jong-un did when he consolidated power in terms of killing off a lot of the top leaders that have been left over from his father and sidelining the rest. Uh, so I would expect some brutal purges uh, to sustain the Kim family's survival and uh, also provocations uh, to prove the strength and resolve of the new leader, both internally and externally. And then the third option is if Kim Jong-un is dead and there's no clear successor in place, there's a distinct possibility for chaos and stability, refugee flows, humanitarian disaster, potential for warlordism, generals backing different Kim family members, unclear who controls the military. All these different problems I think are certainly there. And this is the last point I'll make. Even if Kim Jong-un is alive, we need to prepare for him dying. We know he's extremely unhealthy. He smokes constantly. He's morbidly obese. He's a family history of bad heart health. All the things that we know. It's almost certain that he's going to die prematurely. We just don't know when. So if the leadership of North Korea is thrown into a succession crisis, we need to know what's going on. And we need to be able to position ourselves. In order to position ourselves, we need to know what's going on. We need to have ties and relationships to the regime. And we don't. Intelligence is a prerequisite for any designated plan. And we've isolated ourselves from North Korea. The consequence of which is that in certain scenarios, like succession uncertainty, we're in a, a poor position to understand, let alone influence what's going on. And we're just not prepared for Kim Jong-un's potential death. I want to stop here. There's a few more things I wanted to mention uh, in terms of, we can talk about the Q&A in terms of coronavirus and what it may mean in North Korea, uh, China, what's going on in South Korea. But I'll leave it to you to ask some questions and see where you want to go. I'll stop there. Thank you, Abe. It's it's fascinating. And uh, first one uh, that has come in from a staffer is, uh, is there any precedent of either Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-il having similar rumors of their deaths and not appearing in public to dispel those rumors? Um, it did happen a few times. Um, the difference is that Kim Jong-il was not nearly as public as either his father or his son. Uh, he did not make a lot of public appearances. He did not give speeches. He did not, he was not nearly as engaged uh, with the public as, as either his father or his son. So it's a little different. Um, there were periods, however, for both Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, uh, where they would be gone from view, gone from North Korean media for weeks at a time, and sometimes without explanation. And, and it has also happened with uh, Kim Jong-un as well. So it's a bit uh, normal for them. But what's interesting to me is that there's all these rumors flying around the North Koreans are certainly aware of this uncertainty, and they're making a choice to not dispel questions about what North Korea, what about Kim's status, uh, and that to me is potentially a bit telling that something is going on, as they certainly could dispel those rumors very easily if he was just hanging out at his beach villa. So, what is your best guess as to the current status? Yeah, what I'd say my 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 first answer to all this is I would say I have no idea. Um, if I were to guess, based on everything we just talked about, I would guess that he is in some sort of health crisis, either from a health surgery or he has coronavirus or something's going on, uh, which is preventing them from dispelling the rumors, preventing him from appearing publicly. Um, what that may be, I have no idea. He's not a healthy guy. Um, and so whether, you know, I don't think he's, I don't think he's dead yet. Um, but I don't think he's just sunning himself by the ocean either. Because otherwise we would have probably seen some proof of life because they obviously, they're not stupid. They know the world is talking about this. 
Um, I mentioned that they've had a, a few media notices showing that there was, uh, uh, he's been sending and receiving some boring diplomatic cables, uh, but no pictures, no real proof of life, him with the newspaper, nothing like that. Um, and they could dispel it if they wanted to. The, the, other, the other side of it, though, is that if, it's, if he's just social distancing, they may want to keep it quiet as well, just because they're still saying that there's no coronavirus. So no coronavirus. we need to be careful not to jump to, to too many conclusions at this point. Right, right. Uh, a couple questions came in uh, about China, and I'm going to group a couple of them together. One is, how does China play into this? If Kim Jong-un passes away, are they likely to intervene or attempt to install a puppet? And another question that's similar is, if Kim is dead, what's the best outcome for the PRC? So, yeah, those are, those are good questions. Um, uh, China is no fan of Kim Jong-un and no fan of North Korea. There's a tremendous amount of distrust and antipathy on both sides, uh, dating back to the 1950s. Uh, but China, I think, is certainly is more concerned about um, uh, instability on North Korea. So um, I'd say China certainly has some insights and relations with North Korea, uh, certainly better than the United States, uh, but not as, not as much as many people expect, uh, especially in Washington. Uh, remember, I mentioned before, Chung Sung Tech, uh, Kim Jong-un's uncle, was killed in part because he was seen as too close to China. Uh, trade from China does not really translate into leverage for China. Uh, Beijing's primary concern, I expect, would be, as I said, instability, like refugee flows uh, in a united Korea, bringing the United States close, closer to China, to the Yellow River. Um, so I expect China's goal in some sort of contingency of instability in North Korea would be to maintain stability in North Korea and keep the United States and the, and the South Koreans out. Of, uh, of North Korea. Uh, so that raises the possibility that the Chinese may decide to go in with their military um, or with some other capabilities to stabilize, to prevent refugee flow, do something to prop up the regime. Um, also possible that they have somebody in mind uh, who they believe will um, do a good job of running North Korea, maybe reform it along the lines of Deng Xiaoping reforming China, uh, which has been China's dream for quite a while now. And they may try to support them as sort of a Chinese-friendly regime. Uh, but if there's a civil war, uh, some people will say that um, the United States and China should partner on North Korea. And I definitely think we need to talk about North Korea. And there's, I think there's a lot of concerns we need to air with the Chinese when it comes to North Korea. But uh, there's also, we need to accept the possibility that uh, if, China, if there's a civil war, China may be uh, just as likely to be something of an adversary as much as a partner of the United States. Uh, and it's actually one of the more likely ways that the United States and China could find themselves in a conflict, again, on the Korean Peninsula. In terms of what China's preferred outcome would be, um, I think that their preferred outcome would be that Kim Jong-un's okay and they can just sort of keep working him. Uh, the, I think for a lot of the Chinese, the devil you know is better than the uncertainty of what happens after him, uh, even though they don't like him very much. Uh, they would rather see gradual, careful reform rather than just throwing things up in the air and seeing what happens, um, especially when it comes to a country with a lot of nuclear weapons and a lot of poor, uneducated people potentially flowing into Northeast China. So you throw a lot of caveats into the, the Chinese relationship with North Korea. And for years, our policy was to try to really have China be the, the main 
person talking to them, and that has changed in recent years. But how much can can we assume that they are actually that China actually has a role to play here, and how much influence would they have? We had a couple of questions that really get to that particular question of it. Yeah, the the,、um, the relations there go back, as I mentioned, to the fifties. Uh, and not to get too much into the the dramas and the the plenums of Communist Party meeting、uh, histories,、uh, there was a real sense in North Korea that at one point Stalin and,、um, or I should say, the Soviets and the Chinese were conspiring with one another to、uh, get rid of Kim Il Sung in the fifties,、uh, and so that really by the sixties the North the North Koreans had embraced this idea of self sufficiency that they didn't want to be dependent on the Chinese、uh, or the Russians or anybody else. They'll take their aid. But they're very、uh, sensitive to maintaining their own independence. So、um, the Chinese,、um, they have a lot of trade.、Uh, the vast majority of North Korean trade goes through China,、uh, but that does not has not translated into uh, real uh, leverage for Beijing so far.、Uh, either because the North Koreans、um, are implacable and they'll say we'll starve to death, we don't care, we're not going to do what you tell us. Or the Chinese have just been unwilling to use the leverage that they have.、Um, mostly, as I mentioned before, they're concerned that if they push the North Koreans too much, then it could actually turn into a、um, it could precipitate a collapse and increase the, the instability that they're trying to avoid.、Um, so, you know, they, they could do dramatic things like trying to going into North Korea again. But I think there's a lot of options between where they are now and going forward. They certainly, I expect, prefer to do that. Uh, rather before they start sending in the troops. Okay,、uh, we've gotten a few questions on the、uh, South Koreans, and we'll pivot to that here.、Um, should the U.S. and South Korea in the near future start holding military exercises in South Korea, like has been done for decades, as a deterrent to a North Korean invasion?、Mm. I felt like a leading question.、Mm. Um, yes. <laughs> um, so I, I would say that.、Uh, The exercises are stabilizing. They're compatible with international law. They're important for readiness and deterrence,、uh, as well as reassurance.、Uh, the North, and so I think we should be doing them.、Um, I'm actually comfortable with them being on the negotiating table in a negotiation with、uh, North Korea,、uh, but I would want them to be in exchange for something. When we stop doing military exercises. Uh, with the, with the South Koreans,、uh, the North Koreans had no obligation to change anything. They were able to keep doing their exercises,、mm-hmm. and so yeah, th- I'd say that we should uh, keep them uh, keep them going in order to maintain deterrence, reassurance, and readiness. Well, and to dovetail to that,、uh, what would you expect an American ROK military posture to be in a succession crisis? Well, you know, a lot of this is going to depend on where the South Koreans are. On this, right now the progressives are ascendant in South Korean domestic politics.、Um, they control the Blue House. They just won a fairly sizable election in the National Assembly, and their approach has been to very、uh, committed to engaging with the North Koreans, very committed to trying to move ahead with a peace plan, even though the North Koreans have suggested and demonstrated time and again that they're not that don't seem to be that interested in a peace plan with the South Koreans,、uh, at least. Um, recently,、um, the South Koreans, the current South Korean government is very committed to this approach.、Um, seeing the North Korean, many seeing the North Koreans more as sort of a wayward cousin 
um, and wanting to get them back on, on the straight and narrow. So if there's a concern about instability or leadership crisis in the North, I expect the current government would be uh, looking to try to engage them, to help them, uh, to bring stability as best they can, but not in a way that we would expect a more conservative South Korean government or a more hawkish U.S. Uh, looking at things to, to potentially go in, unify the peninsula while the South Koreans are, are uh, while the North Koreans are facing instability. Not saying that's what a conservatives or an Americans would do, but it's a different mindset coming from South Korean conservatives and more hawkish Americans, seeing the North Koreans as an enemy, seeing them as inherently threatening and hostile. And so therefore seeing instability as potentially an opportunity to do something. But as I mentioned before, this is really the only way that we've been talking about instability in North Korea and sort of through a military lens, that in terms of building relationships to understand the elites, to have that sort of knowledge and influence with the elites, so we could shape what's happening at the political level, we haven't been doing that. And to me, that's where I would be focusing, is trying to build some of those relationships within the context of maintaining pressure as best we can. One interesting question that has come in is, why do you think ROK is saying he is alive and well? Would they have a motivation to say he is fine, even if they knew he wasn't or didn't have firm intel? Uh, you know, they may have intel that says that he's fine. Um, it, it's certainly possible. I, I don't know what's driving uh, certain officials in Korea to say that. Um, they may have the information. Um, they may be um, seeing that as part of what they prefer to see. Um, and taking maybe some vague information and turning it into that. I honestly don't know. I'm not going to speculate as to what's motivating them. I think we need to take, to take what they're saying as seriously as what, we take, what we're hearing from other governments. And I've noticed that President Trump has been very circumspect in how he describes these. And he's not always circumspect about such things. And so that gives me pause to try to weigh any sort of rumor that's out there over another. Well, you, you great segue into the next question. Uh, has the Trump administration policy of engagement with the North Koreans been effective? Or if not, what do you think that their policy should be? Yeah, I, um, I, I've, I've had some real problems with the Trump administration's approach. Of course, one would have to um, decide what period of Trump administration you're talking about in that the first year was very committed to fire and fury, raising the pressure on the North Koreans, a lot of rumors of considerations of uh, the use of military force against the North Koreans, followed by a much more, uh, a much more engagement-oriented approach, meeting with Kim Jong-un twice, the first time any sitting president has done that, giving up things unilaterally like military exercises, uh, while also maintaining pretty significant economic sanctions. Um, I think that it hasn't been successful uh, in that... Um, North Korea remains committed, has still been able to build nuclear weapons, build more missiles without constraint. Um, the Trump administration has been willing to turn a, to shrug and sort of turn a blind eye to the many missile tests that North Korea has been doing of short and intermediate range missiles recently. Actually, last month, North Korea tested more ballistic missiles that month than in any previous month before. Uh, but there was no significant reaction to it because the missiles weren't of a, of a significant enough range to, uh, raise, to raise concerns from the Trump administration. So um, I don't think it's been uh, effective. Uh, but on the, on the, um, in that sense, um, the previous administrations haven't been successful either. Right? North Korea has been 
able to develop nuclear weapons um, pretty consistently for, uh, for several administrations at this point. I do think that, that we could do better. I think there's versions of, of failure that have been more helpful uh, during the Clinton administration, especially, uh, where we, we were able to constrain their capabilities and freeze them for a time. Um, so I do think that having a more realistic approach to diplomacy uh, would, be, uh, would be wise. Um, trying to have a more step-by-step -step approach rather than these sort of maximalist ideas. Um, but also valuing what we have, valuing what the North Koreans want in terms of not giving away meetings with the president, not giving away exercises, um, rather keeping them as value and getting something for it. And I guess if we, we've been through this interesting period as far as relations with North Korea go, but it hasn't really given us any more insight into the country, apparently, because we still don't know what's going on. There hasn't been any, there's not been any way that we really know more, even after a few years of what seems like a, a thawing relationship and opening up. The kind of relationships we have, one of the challenges we have with these um, relationships with North Koreans is that we tend to, fo we tend to mostly engage with uh, foreign ministry people. Um, and they're there for decades. Uh, they change out very very uh, infrequently. And so our people though, they change out every couple of years. Um, and so building those relationships have been tough, but also we're not really building relationships with the key decision makers. My sense is that the foreign ministry isn't making decisions about whether or not to give up nuclear weapons. They're more of a conduit. Um, at least that's, that's my sense. Um, so one of the pieces I've been hoping for um, has been for more actual talks between the US military and the North Korean military. Uh, these mill-to-mill -mill talks like we have with China um, can actually be really helpful in not really in building relationships, but actually just sort of airing concerns and getting some sort of understanding about the, how the other side thinks of things. Um, like we did with the Soviet Union uh, for a long time. What we do with China is much smaller than that, but we don't have anything with the North Koreans at this point. Um, the, the other point I, I should have made uh, with the previous question about the Trump administration, there's one thing that, that, the, North, that the Trump administration accomplished that I thought was very important. Uh, and they didn't get enough credit for it when it was happening. In the first year uh, of pressure from North Korea, on North Korea, the Trump administration was able to get the Chinese on board with very intense pressure on the North Koreans. And that was a very important accomplishment. Um, they've since lost that support from the Chinese. The Chinese are no longer on board with how the Americans want to approach North Korea. But for a time, I think the Trump administration should have gotten more credit than it did for getting the Chinese on board with very... Uh, intense pressure on the North Korea. Hmm. Well, Abe, thank you so much for covering this for us. Thanks, and uh, we, uh, we... We're very appreciative to Abraham Denmark for joining us for this, uh, explaining all of this to us. We, it's an area of the world that really we don't know very much about, and it's great to have people who are watching this situation as closely as Abe is. We also have other experts such as Gene Lee, who is with us at the Wilson Center, was not able to join us on this podcast, but hopefully we'll be able to have her on again soon. And thank you for listening to the Need to Know podcast. <laughs>